Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. How many of you know what arachnophobia is? Most of us can kind of clue for anybody who's not aware. This is, uh, it's a fear of spiders is what arachnophobia is. You know what acrophobia is? Fear of heights. Fear of heights. I went, went easy on you with this picture. I had some other ones that I thought about putting up there, but went easy. Uh, do you know what claustrophobia is? You're in closed space, and some of us have had MRIs and that kind of stuff, and you just get a little squeezed in. Again, I was being merciful to you in back from here, but it's enough pictures, okay? Uh, do you know what uh, ophidophobia is? Fear of snakes. Fear of snakes. See what I'm saying? I'm your friend. I'm your friend. Uh, do you know what uh, trypanophobia is? Fear of needles. Fear of needles. Some of you really don't like them, I know. Uh, what is glossophobia? Fear of public speaking. Fear of public speaking. One of the uh, top fears uh, people claim to have universally. Uh, do you know what phobophobia is? Fear of being afraid. It's just like fear of fears is really what it is. You know, according to psychological experts, do you realize there are more than 400 different phobias out there? I mean, you can literally be afraid of everything. Every, it's just like anything can be the source of fear for uh, people anymore. Life is filled with fears, real and imagined. So it shouldn't surprise us that in the scriptures, when you read the Bible, most frequent biblical command from God is just fear not, fear not. It just shows up over and over again in Scripture. God doesn't want our lives to be paralyzed or governed by our insecurities and our weaknesses. He doesn't want our anxieties to hold us captive. He doesn't want us to live our lives in fear. After all, He's given us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? That's what He's given us. He doesn't want us to be paralyzed by fear and timidity according to uh, Timothy. However, having made that point, it's interesting that the Bible has another often repeated word of advice for us about fear. It shows up often. It's, it's generally speaking not as popular among people, but it shows up often in Scripture. Listen to a few verses of Scripture. We're going to look initially in the book of Proverbs. The Bible gives us this counsel about fear. Proverbs 1, 7 says, fear of whom? What's this? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10 and following says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of, what does it say? Wisdom, the beginning of wisdom. And it goes on, explains in verse 11, wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. If you become wise, you'll be the one to benefit. If you scorn wisdom, you'll be the one to suffer. If you want the beginning of wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 10, 27 echoes some of these same thoughts by saying, the fear of the Lord lengthens one's life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. It's 
pray for mom and the child. <laughs> pray for mom and the child. That's, uh, we've all been there, right? The fear of the Lord lengthens one's life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14, 27 continues with this thought. Fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. Proverbs 15.33 says, Fear of the Lord teaches a person to be wise. Humility precedes honor. Proverbs 16.6 adds to that unfailing love and faithfulness covers sin. And look what it says, Evil is avoided by fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19.23 tells us, The fear of the Lord gives life, security, and protection from harm. Proverbs 22.4 states, True humility and fear of the Lord leads to riches, honor, and long life. Any of those things you'd like? I mean, these are just a few insights from the Proverbs and Scripture about fearing God. And they're not, the insights just aren't limited to the book of Proverbs. Jesus himself weighs in on the subject. We don't focus on what he says a lot of times on this subject, but listen to what Jesus says on about the subject, Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. He tells all of his followers... This. He says, dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. Just pause. Think about that. Are you ever afraid of those who want to kill your body? Yes. Yeah. So it's Christmas time. We go shopping and we're afraid <laughs> of those who want to, want to kill us or take our packages or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, we get nervous about that. If you're traveling in Afghanistan today, you would be afraid of those who want to kill your body. I mean, this is just reality. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, Jesus says. They cannot do any more harm to you after that. He's just saying all they can do is kill you. That's not how we think, is it? It's not how we think. He says, Jesus is like, that's all they can do is kill you. Verse 5, he says, but I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. We can look at numerous other passages like these this morning, but what you find is that the Bible doesn't want you and me to be paralyzed by fear of anyone or anything, hear me, except God. He's just telling us in Scripture over and over, it's just wise. It's just common sense. It's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom fear God. That's what he's trying to convey to us here. And that's because of who God is. Because of who he is, you and I are simply wise if we have a healthy respect a reverent fear of him. We need to keep it clear in our mind, Scripture's trying to convey to us, that God is not some sentimental grandfather who indulgently looks the other way no matter what the grandkids do. So it's not God. It's not who he is. He's not a cosmic genie who exists to fulfill your or my every wish, our every demand, to make our lives more convenient and easy and just wonderful all the time. This is not who God is. He's God. And although his patience is astonishingly long, he is almighty and there are limits to his patience. And the wise stay clear of those limits. They fear him. So as so we begin our new series today, talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly of fear, we're going to talk about all three throughout the course 
of this series, but we're going to start today by talking about the good. It's important for all of us to remember and feel a little of the good kind of fear today. According to scripture, the fear of the Lord is a good kind of fear. We need to remember it for our own good. And we forget it to our own peril. Now, which is less painful? You tell me. Is it less painful to learn from our own mistakes or to learn from the mistakes of others? If the beginning of wisdom is learn from the mistakes of others. I mean, it's just like, that's a big part of wisdom as well, right? Learn from the mistakes of others. That way you don't have to repeat them and suffer like they did. So I want us to reflect for a few minutes this morning on the consequences that others have suffered for failing to respect and fear God appropriately. Some of us wonder why certain passages of Scripture are in the Bible that describe these harsh things that God does and so forth. Part of why they're there is so that the rest of us who have humility of spirit enough to fear God appropriately, we read those and we learn from the mistakes and in some instances, the successes of others. That, that's what God wants us to do. It's just common sense. In the process of looking at these, I hope this morning that it will inspire every one of us to choose a path of wisdom, which is the path of fearing God, respecting Him reverently. How many of you remember Noah? Most of us have heard of Noah, most of us remember him, most of us remember his ark and all the animals he gave sanctuary to, uh, to on it. Uh, we have fond, nostalgic feelings about Noah. Uh, there have been those of us who I know over the years have decorated baby nurseries with wallpaper, sheets for the crib, stuffed animals and more, all with a Noah theme. And it's kind of, it's beautiful, it's cool, and you still find these things. But you know what most of us don't spend much time reflecting on when it comes to Noah? Why God told Noah to build an ark to begin with. Why God had to judge the earth like he did. In Genesis 6, verse 1, and then in verses 5 to 8, the Bible tells us when the human population began to grow rapidly on the earth, it just explains, the Lord observed the extent of people's wickedness. And he saw that all their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. I've always thought, this is just astonishing language here, just the, the repetition of the adjectives and, and, and everything. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will completely wipe out this human race that I've created. Yes, and I will destroy all the animals and birds too. I'm sorry I ever made them. Verse 8 says, but Noah found favor with the Lord. And chapter 6 goes on to describe, verse 11, how the earth had become corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. And God observed all this corruption in the world, and he saw violence and depravity everywhere. And so God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Yes, I will wipe them all from the face of the earth. And then he gave this instruction, make a boat. And from that point on, he starts describing what that was going to look like. God's patience with corruption and depravity and violence and evil thoughts and actions had run out. And did he just look the other way and give everybody a pass? Is that what he did? No. Because he's God, he picked a date on the calendar 
He provided for those he intended no harm, because there were those that he intended no harm in the midst of it. And then he carried out his plan for judgment, as excruciating as it was. And globally, if you read the text, eight survived. You can count them on one hand or two hands. I can't, but you could. Count them on two hands. You know, the number of people that survived the flood. But do you think those eight had a healthy figure of God? I can't even comprehend what they must have felt. The terror and gratitude simultaneously. How many of you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? It's not politically correct to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah anymore, these ancient cities in biblical times. But Genesis 18 and 19 tells us about how God's patience with their corruption, their violence, their sexual depravity, their evil thoughts, and their actions eventually ran out. We have no idea from our perspective how long he had endured things with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, or even in the days of Genesis 6. We, we just don't know. I can guarantee it's longer than you or I would have been patient with it. But because he's God and not an overly permissive parent, God picked a date on the calendar. He provided for those he intended no harm, Lot and his family, and he carried out his judgment. If you haven't read Genesis 18 and 19 lately, I encourage you to read it and remember what God did back then. And according to Jesus, those of us who are believers, and I'm just adding to some of us, oh, Jesus wouldn't think that way. Jesus alludes to this passage and doesn't change anything about it. I mean, he endorses the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you didn't know that. I mean, he does. And he tells believers in Luke 17, verse 32, this. He says, I want you to remember what happened to Lot's wife. I mean, he singles out a portion within the story. His assumption is, well, remember all of it, of course. But in particular, remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you don't remember what happened to Lot's wife, go back and read Genesis 18 and 19. You were starting a new, uh, a, a new Bible reading plan on Tuesday, October 18th. Some of you joined us, you know, in the one that we've been on. We're starting the new one. Uh, you can pick up one of these back at the information table back there. Uh, we're going to do a 100-day study on the book, on the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. We're reading through that. If you join us in this plan, uh, the plan itself, the, the exercise in just reading the daily passages will look, remind you about Lot's wife, will remind you about Sodom and Gomorrah, so many other things. I encourage you to join us on that as we work our way through. It's just a U version uh, reading plan, but I'm going to do it together and dive in on October 18th. Hope you'll join us. How many of you remember the 10 plagues in Egypt? You notice these are not, I'm not telling you things that are brand new revolutionary here. I think I'm trying to bring to your awareness, to your remembrance, things that many, many, many of us know. You'll read about uh, the ten plagues in Egypt in a reading plan as well. But the people of Israel 
were in slavery in Egypt, God decided it was time for them to be free. But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was in disagreement with God's plan. He refused to listen. He refused to let them go. So God sent a succession of ten plagues upon Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And each of those plagues was intended to humiliate the fallen principalities and gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And in the process, the one true God was revealing himself personally to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. The Bible tells us, if you've read this uh, recently in Exodus, the Bible tells us that God caused all the water of the Nile River to turn into blood. That forced the people everywhere to dig trenches near the rivers, deep below the rivers to find water, fresh water to survive. This is what they did to try to get water during that period because everything, everything that was easy turned to blood everywhere in the land. That's an astonishing thing. The Bible tells us that God overran the people and the land with frogs and Soon after that, great swarms of gnats and then flies. I thought about putting pictures of these things up here because some of them, some of you don't like them any more than you like snakes or spiders or any other things. But can you imagine your home being overrun with frogs? Literally, the Bible specifies they were crawling in people's beds, in their ovens. They were everywhere. And this isn't because they didn't have doors. I mean, this is the kind of thing we think in our culture. Oh, they, they didn't have doors. They didn't have... No, it's because they were everywhere. I mean, just myriads of frogs and gnats and flies. And then God struck all the livestock owned by the Egyptians with a plague. Specifically, the Egyptians' livestock. And then he sent nationwide illness that caused festering boils to cover all the Egyptians. And he sent a giant hailstorm, a plague of locusts, who devoured everything. And then he sent three days of complete, utter, total darkness. In fact, the text specifies it was so dark that you could, you could feel it. It was thick darkness. And then when Pharaoh still wouldn't listen, God sent an angel to kill the firstborn sons of everyone. But you know, all of Israel was protected from that plague because they had painted, if you remember, the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorposts of their house. After that plague passed, the Bible tells us that finally Pharaoh listened and set the people of Israel free. Do you remember what he did only a few days later? After he let them go, actually after he chewed them out, you know, kind of get out of here, get out of here, we want you to leave. He changed his mind and he raced after them with his chariots, his horsemen, his military troops. He even was, he was so angry, so determined to bring them back that he followed and pursued the Israelites right into the heart of the Red Sea, most likely modern day Gulf of Aqaba. This is most likely where it was. We don't have time to go through the full explanation of that. That's most likely where it was. God had parted it for them. They had passed through on dry ground with, the text tells us, walls of water on either side. And then to all of Israel's amazement, once they had crossed over and God had rescued his people, he fully rescued them 
by allowing the waters of the sea to flow back to their place, drowning the mighty Egyptian army. I mean, they were the superpower of the day. And God took them all out. God's patience had run out, and because he's God, he provided for those he intended no harm, and he judged those who, who just had hard hearts toward his warnings and refused to respect his authority. Now, these are not rare occurrences in history. We don't like to talk about these things a whole lot, but the fact is, it shows up a lot in Scripture. We just sort of fast forward through some of these things sometimes. If we had time, we could talk about when God punished Israel themselves as a nation by sending them into Assyrian captivity. And then he punished Judah by sending them into Babylonian captivity. We could talk about the detail of that. Not a pretty picture. Time would allow, we could talk about the destruction of the temple in the early days of the church around 70 AD. We could talk about the severe punishments that fell upon the unbelieving Jews of that era. Prophecy all over the place in scripture that they could have known had they listened, had they the humility of spirit and avoided what took place in Jerusalem in AD 70. In fact, what you find in history is that followers of Jesus nowhere to be found in the area. They had all fled. They all fled. They had gone into all the world to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, trusting that Jesus would be with them everywhere they went always until the end of the age. This is what they did. But those who rejected Jesus, it was horrible. It was horrible. If we had time, we could talk about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They were believers. They lied about their giving in church. Happened in Acts 5. We may look at it in a couple of weeks, but it, it didn't go well for them. But read Acts 5 if you haven't read it lately. We could talk, if we had time, about the wrath of the Lamb that's described in the book of Revelation. Think about the language. This is right out of the text language. The wrath of the Lamb. Not the wrath of the lion. It's the wrath of the lamb. And it describes how it's soon to be poured out upon the earth full strength at the return of Jesus. We can talk about these things. But the point is the same. How many do we need to talk about before we finally come to the realization that the fear of the Lord just makes sense. It's wisdom. How long before we finally come to realize that although God is patient and merciful, He's just, He's almighty, and there are limits to His patience, and it's just wise to fear Him. Stay close. Close to Him, far away from the limits of His patience. So my question for you is this, should I fear God? Yes, yes. Because he's God, you're not, I'm not. It's not my opinion that matters. Your preferences and opinion, 
what God thinks. It's time that we as his people, it's time that we as a nation, it's time that humanity, globally speaking, come to a place of humility and just do the wise thing. Humbly respect and fear God. We are in the mess we're in globally because we don't fear God. And those who don't fear God, guess what? You fear everything else. That's what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. But if you fear God, sets you free from fear. Fearing God is the, God, the good kind of fear. It's good for us. It's wise. It's common sense. And amazingly, the Bible tells us that all who will humble themselves before God and do it now, all who will repent of their sinful attitudes and actions, they have a glorious, joy-filled future ahead. Because our fearsome, righteous God is merciful to the sincerely repentant. He has a soft spot in his heart for those who repent. We see it on full display when Jesus allowed himself to be crucified and die on a Roman cross. He was hung there as punishment for our sins. He did not have to take that. He willingly did so. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, he says, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Who would have ever imagined or entertained the notion that a fearsomely righteous God would be merciful, patient, gracious towards unholy but repentant people like you and me? I mean, you and I wouldn't have made this up. Just couldn't have made it up. According to the Bible, that's the nature of God. So this morning, if you happen to show up here today and you think, I've fouled up so many times in my life that the mere thought of a fearsome, holy God makes me want to duck and run. Or maybe you showed up today and you were thinking, I'm wondering about the structural integrity of the roof. Maybe that's you today. The Bible has good news for you. If that's any one of us. If you and I will humbly repent now, we'll do it now while there's time, there's mercy to be found at the foot of Jesus' cross. There's mercy. But it's not mercy for you to keep on living however you want to live. It's mercy 
for those who are humbly repentant and going to seek Him for help, for power, for transformation, to become different, better people who live according to His will for their lives. This is what He's calling us to. So if you confessed your sins to God, that you asked Him to forgive you, to fill you with His Holy Spirit, and you identified yourself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, as Scripture teaches. When you choose to fear Him, and as a result, need to fear no other. Hope you'll choose the Lord because our holy God wants to draw near to us. This is what He wants. He wants to draw near to us. He wants to show us mercy. He has a soft spot in his heart. This is why Jesus went to the cross. And he wants us to humble ourselves like he humbled himself. And to approach him for who he really is. The holy, the righteous, the fearsome, but the forgiving. choose to draw near. I'm going to ask you if you would, let's stand together. We're going to close in prayer in just a moment. If you need to be baptized, you know, we want to help you with that. Let us know then so we can help you with that. If you need prayer for some area of your life, let us know. Uh, we have people who honored to pray for you this morning about whatever needs going on in your life. But humbly, humble yourself. We need to humble ourselves before our holy and righteous God. Right after we pray, uh, Kurt Cogweiser, one of our elders here, I don't know where Kurt is, I lost him. Kurt's in there. Why don't you go ahead and start coming up here while I pray. He's got a quick announcement he wants to make as we wrap up. But um, glad that you made it this morning. Hope you reflect on all of this. Just grab one of those, maybe that mic there. And then uh, we'll be dismissed afterwards. All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your favor. We thank you that although you are almighty, you are merciful. Lord, all of us who will humble ourselves and repent, thank you that you have a soft spot in your heart toward us. Our request is, Lord, that you would enlarge the soft spot in our hearts toward you. <coughs> we would recognize who you are and all that you have endured throughout the generations of time for mankind. It's a miracle that you haven't wiped us out again. But we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we come to you this morning just humbling ourselves and acknowledging our desperate need for you. And we ask, Lord, that you'd have mercy on us, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you'd cleanse us from unrighteousness, that you would transform the desires of our hearts by way of your spirit in our lives. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to, help us to remember who you are and not allow familiarity with you and familiarity with your mercy to make us diminish Lord, I just thank you that you care enough to have come, that you care enough to have died, and that you've called us. 
us to respond in faith and we'll rejoice to be your children. Now go with us as we leave this place. Be with us, empower us, help us to remember the good kind of fear. And in the coming weeks, because we remember this, would you help us to overcome the bad kinds of fear? It's our request for it. In the name of Jesus, we lift it. And everybody agreed with me and said, Amen. Amen.